You know, I, I'm so career oriented, you know, and driven, competitive, all of that. To me, it was let's achieve this this goal, you know, this this level, this trophy, this what it is. And what I put secondary was my passion and my heart. Hey, Nick Nanton here, and thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. I want to make sure you don't miss a single episode of this show on YouTube. So before we continue, be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You'll have the option to be notified for occasional videos or all of them. If you're on your phone, just go into your settings and switch on notifications. Thanks for watching. Hey everyone, Nick Nanton here. After some technical difficulties, we got it worked out. I've got uh, John Rivers here, the CEO and founder of Four Rivers Smokehouse, but he's so much more than that. I'll give you a brief bio, and then we'll dig in here. Uh, John Rivers is the founder of Four Rivers Smokehouse and also the CEO of Four Roots, an urban farm and agricultural education and food distribution center in Orlando, Florida. John's path to running the most successful barbecue chain in Florida is far from conventional. He is not a classically trained chef or graduate of, or graduate of culinary school, but rather spent 20 years in the healthcare industry, retiring as president of a billion-dollar company in order to pursue his lifelong dream of owning a restaurant. We'll ask if that's still his lifelong dream. Uh, Four <laughs> Rivers Smokehouse began in 2004 as a barbecue ministry after John hosted a cookout to support a local family whose daughter was battling cancer. John spent the next several years smoking brisket out of his garage before opening his first restaurant in Orlando in 2009. Today, the 4R Restaurant Group has 22 locations in Florida. Four Rivers have been voted the best barbecue in the South by Southern Living Magazine. And John has been named a finalist for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award two times. Through all the growth and success, John's barbecue ministry remains at the heart of his company's mission to lift up those in need and to support the local community. John Rivers, good to have you, my friend. Nick, thank you so much. I always hate it when they read the bio like that, you know? It's so dang embarrassing. I, I get it. I get it. Well, it's it's well-deserved. So, look, I'm going to dig in probably a little different where, than where most people did. You clearly, we talked about it even in the bio, you had a successful career in the in the pharmaceutical world. And you and I were driving one time on a shoot, and you mentioned something to me that um, you were you were climbing the ladder corporately in that in that. Uh, industry and in that company and you said something interesting to me, interesting to me that you said um, the day you got named president you knew that you were done there uh, yeah. tell me tell me a bit about that thought process of spending 20 years trying to get trying to get to a position and reaching the pinnacle of what you probably thought you always wanted and then what was the thought process from there you know it, it's it's funny Nick you said exactly it's what I thought I wanted you know I, I'm so career oriented, you know, and driven, competitive, all of that. To me, it was, let's achieve this, this goal, you know, this, this level, this trophy, this, what it is. And what I put secondary was my passion and my heart. And, you know, and, and especially the, the last three years of my corporate career, I started doing the ministry and started cooking for people. And for goodness, 18 years prior to that, I was traveling all over the country you know, talking to barbecue pitmasters about how they do brisket, trying to figure this out. And, you know, and, and I look back and I'm like, wow, you know, I could see where I was alive and I was just full of energy. And then I could see, too, when I was going to work, you know, the, the person Monday through Friday was a different person than Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, the one thing I always tell people now that the importance of that consistency 
you know, you've got to be doing what God intended you to do. You've got to do follow your passion and follow your heart. Otherwise, you know, if, if you don't have your heart into something, you, you, you're never ever, you're not going to perform as good as you could be. And, and you're certainly not going to fill that that hole that you have burning in here, knowing there's something else you can do. And it, it was a click. You know, it was right when I got that promotion and I was in that role for two years. And I always say those were, were probably my, my least favorite two years of all the 20 back in healthcare. And, um, you know, it was it came a day when I just decided, you know, there was so much of a difference between the level of joy and energy and creativity that I was getting when I was thinking about cooking and, and thinking about running the, you know, one day a, a smokehouse and, and doing the ministry from the day to day of what I was doing on Monday through Friday. I said, you know, I'm cheating the company and you know, I'm, I'm, my heart's not here. So I resigned, you know, I retired after, you know, helping to build this business. And I never forget my boss asked me the same question my wife did. <laughs> she says, what are we going to do now? And yeah, the answer was, I don't know yet, you know, but one of the lessons in that is sometimes you have to take yourself out of the wrong situation, you know, to really truly allow yourself to um, find the right situation. And the longer that we hold on to that that wrong scenario, be it a relationship, be it a job, be it whatever it is, you know, you're just you're preventing yourself to you know being open to actually finding it, you know, whether it comes to you or whether you now have the motivation to go and, and do it. Absolutely. And, and I don't I don't name drop, but I always give credit where credit is due. But my friend Jack Canfield often says, you got to let go of something good to, to be able to grab something great. And that's a really it's a really tough. It's really easy advice to give to somebody else. But when it's you, it's really hard to take. It's um, you're talking about, you know, as a goal you set and you achieved. I actually um, I'm in a workout group in a daily accountability workout group where we text every day a picture of us working out. And it's been about it's about 30 of us. We've been doing it for almost 10 years. And and last year, um, I run quite a bit, but I've never, I don't have any major goals. I just try to stay fit. Uh, any major running goals. Like I don't, I ran a half marathon, figured I could run a full marathon, just didn't want to spend the time doing it on and on. But around October of last year, I realized I'd run 800 miles and I was like, well, hmm, I'd never really set a goal to run a thousand miles a year, but I bet I could do this. You know, it's about, you know. 50 miles a week for, okay, two more months. And um, I made it to the end of the year and I, I posted to my group that, hey, I, I just crossed over, I hit a thousand and two miles, I think, on like the 30th of December. And one of the guys in there said, you know, congrats, Nick, you know, any, any insights on goal setting um, now that you, on that goal, now that you, you've accomplished it? I said, interestingly, I didn't set out to accomplish it as a goal, but once I saw it becoming achievable, I started shifting all of my workouts to where like stopped doing a lot of strength training. I just, I just had to hit this goal of a thousand. And in the end, I'm not sure it was a smart thing to attain because I started feeling really fatigued. Like my knees started to hurt more. My, you know, I would normally, I normally run about 20 miles a week, but then I was running maybe like 30. And I just, you know, I think in a lot of cases, John, we set these goals that are almost irresponsible. Uh, in a way that we don't really understand the what another mentor of mine, Dan Sullivan, called the strategic byproducts. Like, what's going to happen? And I think it's increasingly dangerous these days when most people's goals aren't really even for themselves. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't post it on Facebook. I didn't post it on Instagram because it wasn't for anybody else. It was for me. Um, but yeah. I find it it's, we're in a really interesting spot where people want to achieve things so that people can look at them as opposed to achieving things that are really good for you know their heart and their soul. And obviously, you 
you you got that message loud and clear. I think one of the cool things about it is you in 2004 you were running the oncology department for your your company, and you found out about a little girl who was dealing with cancer, and you and your wife offered to help. Family, you know, denied any monetary contribution, but they said you could host a barbecue and cook for them. You got 450 RSVPs. Okay, so let's talk about this moment for a second. The moment this guy in his backyard, in his garage, has been trying to perfect brisket, and I imagine you'd fed some number of people, but I can't imagine it was anywhere near 450. What do you do? So tell me how much brisket you prepared before that. And then what was your process to go to scale that to make sure you didn't just bomb this fundraiser? Oh, Nick, dude, we had no plan. We had no idea. Literally, I had a, you know, like a Weber smoker in my backyard at that time, you know, and I cooked, you know, for 10, 12, maybe 15 people. And, and God knows it wasn't always good. <laughs> it was really, there, there was one time we made a, you know, brisket starts this big. And one time, I the first time I smoked it at home, it ended up like a hockey puck. You know, it was like this big. And we were watching a football game. And literally, I remember throwing it against the back wall of the house. It was so terrible. And that still didn't break it. We, we had no idea what we were doing. But it was okay. You know, just the exhilaration. You know, the thrill of, man, we're doing this. We're going to feed these people. We're going to help this, you know, little girl. And, you know, and it what was really cool. And, and, you know, the piece that's missing out of the story is just how the community came in. You know, they, 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 people started showing up, equipment started showing up. There was no way I could have done that on my own. And, and then quite honestly, some pretty amazing things happened. And I remember one day, you know, literally all I had in my backyard was, uh, you know, a little Weber. Monica, my wife calls me up and says, Hey, you better get home. And this was the week of the event. And I said, why? She says, Oh, you'll see when you get here. So I race home from Lake Mary down to winter park I, and i go to pull in my driveway and literally, I had to scratch on the brakes because in my driveway was one of these, you know, huge smokers, you know, the big one, you know, the big barrel ones with a trailer on it. And this is a true story, Nick. It had a yellow sticky on it. And I said, hey, man, heard you need you heard you need a smoker. Help yourself. Call me when you're done. I'll come pick it up. And I mean, and just you know, crazy stuff like that. But that was when I started feeling like, hey, you know, this, there's there's little signs that you get. You know, you know, you're like me, you're, you're going to push yourself to a challenge right. and, it, and it could be a crazy challenge. And that's that's the fun part of doing it is proving that you can, you know, and, but when you're when you're doing something that is, is truly the right thing, you know, things start to fall in place naturally when you when you don't have to force it, um, you know, you're on the right path. And you know, that that was the very beginning. I, I could tell you literally a, a hundred stories like that especially when we were trying to open and we had no clue what we were doing it's just you know things would fall into place naturally and they, they still do today you know I, I take a look at our executive team i don't think i've i've never used a recruiter you know literally at the right time the right person walks into my life and i just know that it is you know and, and i know that we need it and you know it all comes together I love it. So, um, brisket would take a master class to learn from you, but you've, you've perfected it. Um, only one question. I've never made a brisket. I'm going to attempt it. I have a big green egg and I have a pellet smoker. Which one would you use? Oh, green egg. hundred percent. Um, right. you know, yeah. pellets nice pellet is, I'm not going to get into the science of it, but, um, you know, it makes it awfully convenient. And yeah. for the, you know, the guy who's starting off smoking, you know, hundred percent use it, you know, until you get it down, you know, the, when you go to a green egg, Green egg is a kiln, you know, and it just retains that heat so well. But, you know, there's there's so much difference in the, the chemical compound 
when you start breaking down wood. You know, we use the big logs on purpose. When you go from a log to a, you know, to a chip, to a uh, little square, to a pellet, it changes every single time. Good to know. All right. Well, I'll, I'll have to, maybe we'll have to film a masterclass with you one day on that. Um, nah. <clears throat> all right. So you then decide uh, you feed these 450 people and things just start happening. You start doing this more and more. Just it's sort of your ministry. You start and, and you're doing this. Um, you decide to, to quit your job uh, and you buy a little building. Uh, those of you who know Orlando, it's a, it's a street called Fairbanks. You buy a little building because basically your wife's like, you got to get out of the garage. Man. You got <laughs> to get out of the garage. Yeah. So tell me about this. So you buy this building and you're going to make what into like a, a commissary? Was this going to be where you're going to just make more brisket? I mean, what was the what was the real plan for that building when you first bought it? We were a mess, Nick. You know, it's so funny. <laughs> I always look back and uh, you know, somebody told me uh, a long time ago, you know, don't don't write a business plan. And I remember coming out of Johnson and Johnson and, and running strategy for some years. You wrote multiple business plans during the year. And I said, well, what do you mean? What do you do? He says, you know, you set yourself to a purpose. And then, you know, he's very faith based. You let God work out the details of the plan. But the, the key thing that he was pointing out to me is that so many times when we we think it's going to be X, Y, Z, and we especially when we write it down, we tend to force ourselves to go down that path. And we miss all the opportunities, you know, that, that come up around it. Now, you still have to have discipline. you got to still stay within the rails. But had we, at the time when we built that thing, when we started building it, we thought we were going to build a little commissary, literally to run the, the ministry out of, you know, maybe run a little catering business out of. And gosh, we had these plans of, of manufacturing brisket and, and making sauce and all this stuff, which consequently we do today. But we had to become a restaurant first. And we opened up and uh, we had a little line, you know, built in the front to serve people, you know, and, and literally I remember telling uh, my, my, my operating guy, I said, let's just set this up in case anybody walks in. And there were only 12 employees, you know, when we opened the doors and there Monaco's one and, and I was the other one. And uh, people started coming in just, you know, what it was, was all those years of serving the community. It's just, there, there's a beautiful symmetry between, you know, it's a relationship. And any business has to have a relationship with its customer. And, the, and that relationship is not defined by a transaction. And if it is defined by a transaction, it will be replaced by a transaction. You've got to have that personal relationship with them. And all those years of serving them and helping them, it started to come back. And they felt like they knew me as they walked in the door, even though, gosh, I didn't know maybe one twentieth or one hundred of them. And that's still the case today. And we take so much of our marketing effort and it's get on the street, get out there, meet people, find out what their needs are, find out you know, what our customer group, what do, what do they like? And, and can we go support what it is that they like? And that's how we build our, our business. But it, it, uh, <laughs> that little teeny commissary space, I got a phone call or I got a knock on the door from the city of Winter Park. God bless them. And uh, they said, hey. You're you're licensed as a commissary, but there are people eating here. He says you're a restaurant. And I said, well, we weren't. We didn't intend to be. He says, you're not built like a restaurant. So we we literally months after we were open had to put rest restrooms in. We had to put parking. We had to put all this stuff in. But hey, you know, you know, obviously it all came together the way it was supposed to. It did. It's still uh, one of my favorite locations. Obviously, what you did with it was incredible. Now our mutual friends, Hunger Street, are in there now, too. What yeah. I always say about that location is the food, I think it's a really great 
crucible testing ground for a restaurant because it's painful to get there, painful to park. Like it's just painful. <laughs> the food has to be crave worthy. If you're yeah. not, if you're not willing to go the extra mile because you have to have that food, you're not going. But I think it's a, that's a great test for a restaurant, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, when you think back back then in two thousand nine. I mean, Fairbanks was not the Fairbanks it is today. No, it's it's it still has a long way to go, but it's uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. much better. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the House of Hookah was the the, the guiding star for the road. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me this: um, during construction, uh, you had a few hiccups. Uh, you poured a half a million dollars into it, and you got down to. 60 days left of disposable income. Now, this is a really interesting thing that I've noticed as well. Um, there, there have been so many times in my life when, um, you know, just like as a college kid or just a, a young professional, like you, you're trying to make it. You're, you're like, if you don't get that paycheck, you're probably not going to eat next week, right? Like you're, you're just paycheck to paycheck. Then all of a sudden you reach this level of success and that somehow your your brain, whereas if you had 60 days worth of money in the bank in college or early career, you'd be like, I am killing it right now. I'm, <laughs> but the more successful you get, you get to this. Yeah. Uh, Will Smith, I was reading his book the other day, and it's called, he calls it the success paradox. You know, when you're, when you're trying to hit success, you, you're, you're grinding through the pain of making it. And when you get to a certain level, all you do is fear losing it. And, yeah. and there's this level now. So you're looking, you're looking at the fact that I'm 60 days away from not having any disposable income, which is scary, but it's just so interesting how our brains go from one edge to the other. When, when you had that realization, um, what happened? What had to happen? Or did you just pray about it? I mean, what'd you do? Uh, yeah, uh, an awful lot of prayer. Um, but, you know, you, that's when you kick in, too. You know, you're going to fight. You know, it wasn't the first time in my life I was down like that, you know, and that, I think that was a blessing as I look back. You ever hear that um, saying by uh, Kierkegaard, uh, 18th century theologian? He says, you live your life moving forward, but you tend to understand your life looking back. And, you know, all those things that happen in your life, they, they're preparing you for when you have that. I'm convinced they prepare you for when you finally have that opportunity to achieve greatness that you've got the courage or the strength or the know-how to get through that. Because, you know, greatness, you, you gotta, you gotta go through a wall. You know, other, if it's too easy, then everybody would be doing it. And you, you've gotta be absolutely willing to fight and you gotta be willing to give it all up. And, you know, when that, when that 60 days kicked in, you know, I did talk to my wife because at the same time, I don't, the, the back end of that story is, I got a phone call from my old boss and uh, he offered me a CEO role of three specialty pharmacies that they were going to combine the assets here in Orlando. And I went and I talked to her about it and she, we knew what we were up against. And she said, you know what, John, and this is an important part because you got to have that partner. She said, um, you know, if, if you believe this is what God wants you to be doing, and this is the path, this is what your heart is doing, heart is on, I'll stand by you even if we lose everything. And man, I tell you that, that courage, that, that shot that it gave me was I'm going to break this wall down. I'm actually going to figure, I'm, I'm, no matter what it takes, I'm going to figure out a way to get this done. And and it, and it wasn't me. It was by the grace of God. You know, people started stepping in from, again, just like that smoker showing up in my house. You know, my, my contractor walks off the job. And, you know, two weeks later, a guy in a Bible study or a friend of mine who owns a construction company shows up and he, he gets me to CO. Gets me to CO. This is a really cool part. 59 of the 60 days before I ran out of money. We literally opened one day 
before we ran out of, of cash and capital. And then I remember the opening morning, because we didn't have any money to advertise. We didn't have any money to promote. There's no PR. There's, it's just, hey, man, we're just going to get these doors open and let's see what happens. And I told everybody, we, we said a prayer in the morning, all 12 of us. I said, I don't know what's going to happen at 11 o'clock when we open these doors, but, you know, we're going to give it everything we can. And, uh, man, people started showing up and they started coming in. And they started coming in and started coming in, and we were so flat-footed and so unprepared. You know, now that we're you know in the restaurant business and we know how to open places, I look back and I just like cringe. You know, I had to laugh at some of the crazy things that we were doing. There were there were items on the menu, Nick, that I had put on there that I had in my head, okay, but we had never made them before. And I remember, <laughs> I think it was like the Cochon Dulay. You know, some guest walks in and I'm the carver, you know, in the front line and I'm calling back to the back of things that, to make. And I said, OK, um, oh, it's fried pickles. I said, fried pickles. And literally everybody in their, in their back stops and they look at me like, how do we make those? <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm calling back there. Make dude, 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 just try this. <laughs> we are putting it together. But you know what, though? Those you look back. Those are the fun days. You know, yeah. that's 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 chasing your dream and chasing your passion and. You know, there'll be a day when, like now, you know, there's process, there's procedures, and so and so, and you know, you don't lose that. I pray you don't lose that competitive, creative streak. You know, you, you to me, you, you constantly. I'm a terrible operator. You know, I'm a I'm I'm a great developer and creator. And when the business is going great here, you know, I get bored and I'll go kick something. You know, I'll make it happen. And you know, quite honestly, during the COVID time, during 2020, that was probably one of the funnest years I've had. You know, running a business because that opened so many doors. You had to be creative in order to survive. You know, in in every in every disruption, there is an opportunity if you're if you're willing to look at it that way. And that that opportunity exists when you when you look at it from a different lens and a different perspective. Of all right, we got to pivot big time. And that pivot may not be forever, but how do you maximize this situation? And and a lot of the lessons that we learned during 2020. We're actually still doing them today, and they're helping us run a better business than we did in 2019. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, obviously, it was an unnerving time for all of us because we didn't know what was going to happen next. And if you'd have told me that two years later, you know, COVID was going to still be around, I, you know, I would have laughed, right? But <laughs> a friend of mine, Dean Jackson, just says, you know, look, don't get emotional. Be the umpire. You know, in every game, someone's going to be excited. It's, you know, it's in. Someone's going to be excited. It's out. They're opposite teams. He said, you win when you become the umpire. Just call it as you see it and just adjust accordingly. And I, I think that's, that's what you did. And that's, that's great advice. All right. So you, you built up to over 20 restaurants. Um, tell me this. Obviously, you have a system and a process for it now. Um, how hard was it to open the second one? Because you couldn't be at the set at both of them at the same time. I've often heard the second one's the hardest in a lot of ways. The, the second one was 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 challenging. Um, now I, I'd built multiple businesses. Here's the blessing I had, and and you know I ran um, uh, business development and strategy and stuff for all these other companies. So I knew how to build a business, and uh, it was probably three, four, five months into opening. And literally at that point, we're there every single day, you know, all six days of, of the seven days of the week. And I'm always a carver and next to me is Jeff, my operating partner. And, you know, and we got a system down. And one day I say to him, I said, hey, I got to run to Costco. Um, can you cover lunch today without me? And he says, sure. Yeah, I got it. And I went to Costco and, you know, he asked me the next day, we're up there carving. He says, hey, he says, 
where'd you go yesterday? I said, I went to Costco, which I did. He says, what'd you buy? And I said, nothing. I said, I walked around like a, a nervous father, you know, the wife giving the first birth for two hours and I came back. I said, why'd you do that? And I put the knives down and I look at him. I said, Jeff, I said, if I am here every single day, we will never grow. You know, I've got to be able to pull myself away and to be able to watch the operation unfold and, and take place without me being there. So slowly over the next uh, 120 days, started pulling away more and more and more. And what I was doing was looking for site number two. And during that time, you know, processes and procedures started to be defined. That makes total sense. Um, during uh, this time, you started, you started seeing uh, some different things happening in, in the food supply side of the business. Uh, tell me when you first stopped just paying attention to let me make some barbecue to let me look at this whole food system or like what, and tell me what you, what you learned. You know, there's, there's probably two influences in that. Um, one is my wife, Monica, um, in this, you know, little known odd, oddity in, in the world is my wife um, is a vegan, you know, and I, and I serve, you know, as much beef as I possibly can. <laughs> um, you know, her, eight-year transformation into healthy eating really uh, I watched it and quite honestly it, it helped heal my back I've, I've got some some curvature in my back and you know it's it's because of the diet and getting inflammation out that it kind of was eye-opening like wow there's really something to this so you had that happening and then you had our foundation efforts you know, we started we were supporting a lot of global efforts then we we pulled everything out and said let's let's Go ahead and, and focus on our backyard and see what a difference we can make in our own community and uh, started getting involved with school systems and really just learning about seeing firsthand what the kids were eating in the public schools and then learning that the, the two two factors changed really pivoted for me one when i found out that one out of five students in our school system today and this is not, not indicative just to orlando live in food insecurity and I beg the question, well, what does food insecurity mean? And she says, well, this is typically the only food that they eat, you know, the breakfast and the lunch that you get here. I said, what happens when they go home? There's not food for them. I said, what about the weekends? There's not always food for them. They got to they gotta find it themselves. That part motivated me because I, I, there was a season in my life that I lived like that. And, I, and, it, and it touched my heart when it did that. And then the second thing, and this is what threw me over the edge, you think about all these people and in, 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 in around the whole state, around the whole country that are living in hunger, there must not be enough food, right? There must be not enough production that's out there. And we found out that in the state of Florida alone, okay, and this is not just for Florida, in the state of Florida on an annual basis, there's 1.8 billion pounds, or I'm sorry, 872 billion pounds of produce that goes to waste every single year on the fields and the trucks, uh, uh, put in the landfills or just gets thrown away. And this is before it even gets to the retailer, okay? So you take a, almost a billion pounds of produce that's going to waste and you got 20% of our kids who aren't eating anything. I said, this is the challenge, you know, and I, and I love that. You know, and everyone said, you can't fix the food system. I said, bunk, you can't. You know, people told me you can't serve brisket in Florida. <laughs> you know, bunk, you can't on that either, you know what? You know, we're gonna figure out how to do it. And uh, it, it kicked in. And it's, and it's it's all from compassion too. 
know, this one's not for personal gain. You know, we, I'm blessed with the business now and that's going fantastic and it's going to continue to grow. But now it's like, what, what can I, what, what has a bigger meaning in life than running a business and starting a business? And it's, it's making an impact and it's changing people's lives. And, you know, the thing that speaks to my heart is, is food and it's food and, and it's health. And uh, you start digging into it, you know, you can't just give food away. And we learned this from my friend who's the president of uh, Second Harvest. He said, John, you remember, I remember that he told me, he said, John, you can't food bank your way out of hunger. And I said, what does that mean? He says, John, we are giving away more food today than we ever have in our history as a food bank, yet hunger is at the very highest it's ever been. That's not the solution. You got to have it. It's an important part, but you're not going to fix the situation if you do that. And it comes back to education. And it comes back to awareness. You sit down with these kids and you start talking about the green beans. You know, do you like green beans? And they don't, you know, some of them never had it before. Well, here, oh, where's this from? Where, do you, where does the green bean come from? From a can, from Publix, you know, from the grocery store. Literally, and it's okay, it's not their fault. You know, it's not their fault. No one's ever taught them that it actually comes from the ground. And it's so important, you know, that that relationship goes back once again to relationships. You know, the relationship between us as a population and the earth and the planet and protecting the soil and protecting the, the carbon count and what the food comes out of it. Make sure that it's healthy. You know, when food starts to fall down, OK, when the distance between production and access increases, that's when you see communities begin to crumble. And today in the United States. Our produce travels on, on average of 1,872 miles before it gets to our plate. And yet we have all this produce in here in Florida. And yet we have all these farmers, you know, farmers today, 300, 330 farmers lose their property on average per week in the United States today. We're almost down to 2 million farms for the first time in post-Civil War days. And as a country, we just surpassed, this is not a good stat, we just surpassed the bringing in more produce than we're actually producing for ourselves. We're bringing, we just went over 51% of our, our produce that we eat today is actually imported. And it's just, you know, there, there's so many factors that are going into this. So we're digging in and it's a challenge and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun too, learning, you know, and that's, that's part of the journey that people underestimate. You know, if your heart's truly in it, you, it, those hard times that you go through, you know, they're worth it because you're you're learning and you're enjoying, and it's it's more than just creating a business. Now you're you're truly doing something for a bigger purpose. And and as, in typical John Rivers fashion, you couldn't wonder about this behind the scenes of of schools and other places. Uh, you decided to start an initiative called Four Roots, and tell us tell us all about that. Tell us where it's at. Tell people. How they can get involved. <laughs> it, it, it started with, well, we're just going to grow our own produce for all the school systems. And uh, I remember telling that to another CEO of a restaurant brand here in town. He looked at me like I had three eyes. And it, it grew from that to saying, you know what? We need to educate students. We need to educate parents. We need to educate communities on where food comes from, the important role that it plays. We need to educate farmers on the importance of sustainable regenerative farming. You know, to, to protect our soil, you know, today in the, in the world, that 52% of our soil has been burned up and turned into dirt. 
And once it turns into dirt, you can no longer grow in it. Matter of fact, the World Health Organization shows us on a trajectory right now that in 60 years, we will run out of farmable soil. And in the United States, USDA shows we're running out in 50 years. And you put that in layman terms, that's 50 years of harvests left until our entire ecosystem requires a, a huge change. So, you know, we're, we took a look at it and we said, we, you can't just go in a silo and educate. You can't just go in a silo and uh, give food away. You can't just go in a silo and, and teach farm. They're all connected. You know, the, the food system goes literally from the, from the seed all the way to the plate. And, and in that process, you've got so many constituents from the, the researcher, from the, the fertilized company, from the farmer, you know, to the wholesaler, to the distributor, to the chef, to the um, retailer, to Publix, to, you know, uh, to the mom and dad, to getting it to your plate. And in simple terms, we're creating a single table, a place, or placating, a single table where all those constituents can actually sit around and speak to each other. And as simple as that sounds, Nick, that doesn't happen today in the marketplace. The farmer is not talking to the chef who's talking to the distributor, who's talking to the, the healthcare provider. And Lord knows, you know, we're not prescribing food as medicine. And that's where that's where medicine started. Was was it Hippocrates that said, you know, let thy medicine, let thy food be thy medicine, thy medicine be thy food? And we've forgotten that. So that's our goal. Is uh, we, we've got a 40-acre facility that Dr. Phillips was so kind to, to grant us right on John Young Parkway. We're two miles away from downtown Orlando. Um, it's a $55 million project, which Lord knows I had no idea how we're going to raise $55 million, and we're almost at $20 million now. Um, you know, on the campus is everything from classrooms, where we're talking to one of the local junior colleges about moving their entire ag program onto our campus this year. Uh, to a farm-to-table restaurant, to a 300-person event center, to eight styles of farming from uh, the number one hydroponic system in the world we're bringing in from Israel to, uh, to a, 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 you know, it's, oh gosh, I forgot how long it is, almost a, a half a mile uh, loop that we're creating for permaculture forest where kids can actually walk through and everything around them is edible, everything that's growing, and they actually go into the forest itself to a culinary health institute. We're launching the, the Culinary Health Institute, the first one in the United States today. And the Culinary Health Institute is dedicated to the study of how to maximize and utilize food as actual medicine to coincide with co-treatment therapy cycles. And um, it's just, you know, it, it's so exciting to see all these pieces coming together. And where we sit today, Nick, we broke ground at the end of last year in the fourth quarter. Buildings are, uh, we're clearing sites right now. And uh, if God allows and everything goes well with construction, it's already funded. Uh, we'll have classrooms up and we'll have students on our campus and farmers on our campus learning about sustainable regenerative practices by the end of this year. I love all of that. Where can people go, John, to learn more about uh, Four Roots? Uh, on the website, uh, www, uh, four Roots Farm, the number four, rootsfarm.org. Uh, and there's an awful lot you can learn there. And uh, Lots of different ways to get involved from even uh, doing composting. We have a compost company now at your house. We'll come by and, and pick it up to a fresh delivery of, uh, we call it the pharmacy uh, with an F, where we actually deliver boxes of fresh produce to your house once a week uh, from all the local farmers uh, to coming out to volunteering to 
help us serve the community. We're, we're working with farmers. We're taking the produce in. We're creating meals. And we're going out and we're giving them to people who need them. And uh, so far, we've given away um, just shy of 2 million meals um, you know, in, the, in the process of, of using what we're building you know, as a platform to help other people. And, and that's where it starts. You know, I always tell people, if you don't know what to do next, start serving. And uh, the answers become real obvious real fast. So uh, a great living example of that, John Rivers. I'll tell everyone who doesn't live in the Orlando area, come visit. Come have some good barbecue. Come check out Four Roots. And, uh, John, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Nick, my pleasure. Good to see you, my friend. You too. We'll see you guys next time on Now to Next. Take care. Hey, Nick Ninton here, and thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. I want to make sure you don't miss a single episode of this show on YouTube. So before we continue, be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You have the option to be notified for occasional videos or all of them. If you're on your phone, just go into your settings and switch on notifications. Thanks for watching.